I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas, my Friday book show. Thanks for listening. Few Americans realize how closely intertwined, how inseparable our history is with Mexico's. We fought wars over the same territory, influenced one another's politics, and remain deeply connected economically. UCLA historian Kelly Lytle Hernandez writes in her new book, The history of the United States as a global power cannot be told without Mexico. Hernandez's book tells the story of a band of rebels who set the stage for Mexico's revolution in 1910. And these Maganistas, as they were known, are still revered in Mexico, Europe, and the United States. Today, a conversation about those rebels and a larger discussion of the role that Mexico played and still plays in American identity. Kelly Lytle Hernandez is a historian in policing and immigration who directs the Center for African American Studies at UCLA. Her new book, It Is a Great Read, is titled Bad Mexicans, Race, Empire, and Revolution in the Borderlands. Kelly, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure, Carrie. I want to dig in a little bit on this linked history of ours, United States and Mexico, and the fact that uh, Americans don't just not know it, but often deny it. So there, there have been determined attempts to erase the knowledge of this interconnectedness between the U.S. and Mexico through state laws. And I'm thinking of Arizona's banning Mexican-American studies in K-12. Will you tell me what you understand is behind these kinds of attempts? Well, that's a very important question. Um, so, yes, you, you rightly note the recent history in Arizona. And, of course, we have more current and contemporary campaigns around critical race theory and ethnic studies, all of which target marginalized histories and stories. Uh, Mexican-American history is one of those. So for me, I think what is behind this is a drive to protect a particular form of the American story that prioritizes um, white folks, um, people in power, and a triumphalist story about the American experiment with democracy. And many of us in our histories run counter to um, those narratives. We have been, uh, we have experienced high levels of violence and subordination and are pushing to make sure that our experiences with the American experiment with democracy are also known and told so that we can pursue a path, really, that's of greater freedom and liberation for all of us. You know, I, I remembered when the Arizona case was in the courts, but I, I I didn't, I guess I wasn't conversant with the details. So I went back to read the 2017 federal opinion in that case. And the judge, Wallace Tashima, ruled that the law that the Arizona state legislature passed was motivated by, quote, racial animus and discriminatory ends in order to make political gains. I mean, th- this is as as you point out, there is contemporary history to this, and there is a long, deeper history of this. Is this about, I, I heard you say triumphalism, is this about the narrative that says America was always on the side of the right 
and progress and when Native American tribes, Mexico, others got in the way, we prevailed because God was on our side and we were meant to prevail. I mean, I know that's a simplification of it, but is that essentially it? Well, what you're articulating is a particular theory of American uh, political land and economic development and and racial development um, that dates back certainly to the mid-19th century, and it's called Manifest Destiny. And most young folks uh, here in the United States learn something about it in their K-12 curriculum. And unfortunately, I do think that it is deeply embedded in the DNA of um, our education system, certainly, and our political philosophies as well, that the United States was um, preordained in many ways to become a global power and to not have to reckon with the the stories of the people who were trampled, who were sold, who were enslaved, who were removed, dispossessed um, through the creation of this political body known as the United States of America. So I certainly think that that, that old political theory of manifest destiny is still at work in a lot of these discourses today and these um, fights today about whose story gets to be told. I, I like the way you, the, the phrase you're using there, preordained, because I think when we as young Americans in K through 12 learn about manifest destiny, it seems inevitable, right? It doesn't seem like, but for this, but for a decision to override and turn out and dispossessed people of their lands, or it didn't have to be that way. Decisions were specifically made for all the reasons that you've articulated. You know, it makes me think that, again, and I know you probably give a lot of thought to this, who tells the story of history really matters, yes? I think that's certainly true. And it's been really important to open up the the doors of possibility for who are storytellers um, here in the United States. In part, that's happening in the academy, but it's happening more broadly throughout our communities as we spread and democratize um, the capacity for for storytelling. And here I'm thinking about technologies that make it possible to reach larger, larger audiences. I mean, do you think that if you weren't telling the story with the background and the knowledge that you bring to this, the kind of story that you've told in this book would get told? (laughs) Well, I certainly have a personal investment in the story. It's a story about race and revolution in the borderlands. And I, I I grew up in the borderlands. I'm from San Diego, California. And I was never told this story about Ricardo Flores Magon and the cotton pickers and the miners and the migrant workers who joined his revolution to oust a dictator from power in Mexico and how they did it in the borderlands on the U.S. side of the border and the Mexican side of the border. And so I have an investment in this story being told uh, from that perspective. And I certainly bring um, another valence to this is that I grew up as a black girl in the borderlands. And I grew up at a time when there was a war on immigrants and a war on drugs surging across the region. And I was watching what was happening to my neighbors and to my friends um, with the Border Patrol in particular that would come through our communities, that would come to the transit stations, the buses and whatnot, and snatch people off of the streets. And I saw that as being 
it resembled what was happening to us as black kids and as black people um, with the local police in terms of the war on drugs and snatching us out of parties, out of schools, out of streets or off of streets. And so from a very young age, I wanted to talk about what were the relationships between black and brown folks in the borderlands and our experiences with, with state violence. And my whole trajectory of work has built off of those questions I had as a young child. And this story is certainly a part of that line of inquiry that I've had. And I wanted to know more about these rebels in the borderlands because they are an extraordinary group of thinkers, uh, political actors who were challenging um, uh, a very violent regime in Mexico. And they were trying their best to do it in an anti-racist and anti-capitalist way. So a couple of questions about what you've just said. I I think you and I are going to be using the phrase the borderlands throughout the conversation. Let's just define what you mean when you speak of this swath of land between the United States and Mexico. I mean, what does it encompass? Well, from the perspective of the United States and when I'm thinking about the borderlands, let's start with talking about what the border is. So the U.S.-Mexico border is a creation of the U.S.-Mexico War of 1846 to 1848, um, in which the United States invaded Mexico, occupied Mexico City, and was determined to acquire as much land as possible from Mexico without having to incorporate many Mexicans who were seen as being um, racialized others, mongrels, part black, part indigenous um, and most important, not white um, in the mid-19th century United States in that framework. And so the United States at the U.S.-Mexico War um, determined where the new U.S.-Mexico border would be by thinking about how much land they could get without having to incorporate a lot of people. And northern Mexico was relatively sparsely populated. And that's how the U.S.-Mexico border gets drawn exactly and precisely where it is drawn. It really is a racial border that's constructed in the mid-19th century and seen as the place between so-called white America and mongrel Mexico. So the borderlands is the region um, of racial borderlands surrounding the U.S.-Mexico border where those two countries, those two ideas really come great against one another, uh, Mm -hmm. conflict with one another. And so the U.S.-Mexico border is by definition a site of, of trauma of division and contestation. You know, I had no idea until I read your book that the United States, as you've just described, seized huge swath of Mexican Mexico's territory. And then when Anglos settled in the borderlands that was owned by this land owned by Mexico, that they basically decided they were not going to live under the rules and the laws of Mexico. I think this is why you say you think of the United States as a white settler state. Yes? That's right. So the U.S.-Mexico War is certainly driven by the theory of manifest destiny, which is undergirded by this notion that um, Anglo-American men and their families, their heterosexual, (laughs) heteronormative families, are entitled Um, if not even obligated to occupy and dominate land and life across the North American continent. And so those white settlers um, 
and their government, the United States government, provoked the U.S.-Mexico War with the idea of seizing um, a broad swath of land that was claimed by Mexico. Now, of course, Mexico itself and before that, the Spanish Empire had laid claim to indigenous lands that really was never um, – determined or reconciled. So it's a bit more complicated of a story. The United States does not just seize land from Mexico. It actually seizes land from multiple indigenous communities across um, the region with the idea of removing those populations and replacing them on the land with white settler um, communities and families. Mm-hmm. So what is your history's, uh, your family's history in this area? I mean, how far back, how many generations does it go? My personal family, you're asking? Yeah, yeah. Sure. So I actually don't have much um, personal depth in the borderlands. My family moved to San Diego, California in about 1974, 75. Um, And so it's our first generation borderland story for myself. What do you think drew you into the area to, you know, to better understand the history and then tell the story of it? I really think it's these questions that I wrestled with as a young child growing up in borderlands, questions about race and power and violence. And no one had an answer for me about what was the connection between what was happening to Mexicanos in the borderlands and what was happening to black youth in the borderlands or black people in the borderlands. And the activities of the police and the Border Patrol, or what I like to call the boys in blue and the boys in green, were so similar. Um, The experiences we had seemed so shared, but nobody could really track it back for me to a a shared origin. And so I've spent the last 20 years of my life trying to figure out what those relationships are, and it's been a great honor and privilege to, to do that work historically in the borderlands, in Mexico, but also to seek out the relationships with um, other communities, indigenous communities, API communities, and what are our relationships to the white settler state? I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to a conversation with Kelly Lytle Hernandez. She's a historian in policing and immigration. She directs the Center for African American Studies at UCLA. And you have been listening to us have a conversation about the more of kind of the overarching history and and forces at work in this area of the borderlands between the United States and Mexico. Now we're going to talk a bit about the history that really drives the story that Professor Hernandez is telling in her new book, Bad Mexicans, Race, Empire, and Revolution in the Borderlands. Here's another revelation for me in your book, (laughs) one of many. Um, I wasn't aware that widespread Mexico Mexican migration really begins when when U.S. citizens start to buy up land and resources in northern Mexico. And for our listeners, I want to read a paragraph that you write about that. By 1920, Mexican labor migrants comprised the American West's single largest low-wage labor force, driving the region's emergence as a global economic powerhouse. And then you quote historian Jason Ruiz as saying that American investors described Mexico as their quote-unquote treasure house. Will you give us more context that may connect what was happening then to what we're seeing 
today, right, in more contemporary history at the border? Sure. I think oftentimes we discuss migration here in the United States as if it happens because individuals make individual choices or families make um, uh, very isolated decisions about leaving their homes and coming to the United States to pursue jobs or economic opportunity. And the example of Mexico in the late 19th and early 20th century and the emergence of large-scale migration, labor migration in particular from Mexico to the United States, really helps us to complicate that, that idea about individual migration. So what happens is that um, after we complete the Transcontinental Railroad here in the United States in 1876, um, the major railroad barons and industrialists and others look up and say, what's next? What territory do we go to? Of course, they're thinking about moving into the Pacific, but very first they look south and they make a relationship with a new military general who has seized power in Mexico by Cureta. Um, his name was Porfirio Diaz. And they begin to penetrate um, with railroads and investments into Mexico first. And the construction of the railroads, buying up land to build um, mines and industrial agriculture and more, all with the support of this new emerging dictator in Mexico, Porfirio Diaz, leads to millions of Mexican campesinos, peasants, rural communities being dispossessed of their land. Once they're dispossessed... They have to seek labor, wage labor, at these on these railroads, at these new mines, in these new industrial farms and whatnot. And they also begin to take those new railroads north because they're beginning, being invited north by U.S. labor recruiters and begin to enter the United States as migrant laborers. That is the origin story of Mexican um, labor migration to the United States. It tracks back to the rise of U.S. Um, imperialism, uh, massive economic investment in Mexico. So it's the stitching together of the U.S. and Mexican economies at the turn of the 20th century that leads to the creation of mass migration from Mexico to the United States. And that is a relationship that has continued um, over the course of the 20th and into the early 21st centuries, that it really is the interlocking of the U.S. and Mexican economies through this, really it's a story of imperialism, um, through that relationship that creates such a transformation that, um, you know, at certain points, 10% of the population of Mexico is living here in the United States. And in fact, by the early 21st century, there was no country in the history of the world who had sent more migrants to the United States than Mexico, which wow. radically transforms our U.S. immigration history and story. Um, no longer is the dominant story about Europe. Instead, it shifts, and it's about Mexico um, and Central America in particular. I mean, what what's really remarkable about what you just described is how how relevant the details are a hundred and something years ago to, in some ways, the way people still get here and the reasons for which they want to come, right? The transports that they use, the reasons that they want to come, this interconnectedness. What, what's, what occurs to you about that? 
Well, what occurs to me is that history matters, right? Mm -hmm. If we want to understand our contemporary moment and more important, try to imagine new ways forward, we have to understand where we've been and how we got here. And so to look around at our contemporary, what are often framed as crises or uh, migration um, and to have a historical understanding that those crises have been constructed over time, right? Mm -hmm. Largely by um, state decisions. Then we have a new set of possibilities for choices that we can make moving forward. Is this about the migrants themselves as individuals, or is this about choices that we have made as a state and as a community here in the United States about um, who can come, when they can come, and how they can come, and under what conditions? So who has the power to rectify the situation? I would argue that it lays with um, the state here in the United States. And if you would just add a little more context to that, tell me why. Well, let's take, for example, the question of the so-called crime of entering the United States without um, authorization. Mm -hmm. That crime was constructed by the United States Congress in 1929 through an explicit campaign to try to stop or manage Mexican migrants from entering the United States. Um, so you got to remember that the 1920s is a period in the United States when the United States Congress passed a series of what can be understood as white-only immigration laws. The 1924 immigration law um, established a quota system that fundamentally um, made it impossible for Asians to enter the United States and severely restricted the number of um, Southern Europeans who could enter the United States. Through a, a quirk um, or really a that was the pressure of agribusiness in the American West. They were not allowed to exclude Mexican migrants in 1924. So white nationalists spent the rest of the 1920s trying to shut the door of, to Mexican immigration to the United States. They were unable to do that. And what they were able to do was get a compromise out of Congress that criminalized the pathway of Mexican immigration to the United States, which was informal, historically informal. So when we think about... Um, the so-called crime of undocumented entry or reentry at the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, it's not about the migrants themselves. It's about us thinking um, through and redressing the laws that we have passed that have racial animus at their core, mm-hmm. that targeted a certain population of migrants for exclusion, and we have the power to change those laws. As you noted a, a moment ago, Porforio Diaz is the president of Mexico, and I think you said the dictator of Mexico. He is aware of what the United States is doing and what it means for his country, right? Yes, Porforio Diaz is a legendary military general in Mexico who um, seizes power in 1876 um, through a, a coup d'etat and holds power until 1911. And he's very savvy and aware that what he's trying to do is build up the Mexican economy and make Mexico a node in the global economy, that he doesn't have the capital to do so. So he invites U.S. and European investors to come into Mexico to build up its infrastructure of railroads and um, industry. And he has 
you know, some concerns, right, about the power of the United States. The United States had once before invaded Mexico and seized half of the land and potentially could do that again, um, but also feels um, maybe even desperate or determined to modernize the economy and knows that he needs foreign dollars to do that. So enter Ricardo Flores Magon. Am I pronouncing his last name correctly? Sure, Ricardo Flores Magon. Magon. Um, who starts to call out Diaz in Mexico in a tabloid that he publishes. And the newspaper is influential because it's widely read among the working class in Mexico. How does he do this? What What is he doing to get the attention of the working class? And why is Diaz concerned about it, even though I, I'm aware that he says he isn't? Sure. So Ricardo Flores Magón is a young journalist in Mexico City in the early 20th century, and he and his brother have a newspaper called Regeneración. And on the pages of Regeneración, um, Ricardo Flores Magón is, one, brilliant, but he's also bold. He is willing to say the things that no one else is willing to say in Mexico under the the reign of Porfirio Diaz. And that namely is he name checks Porfirio Diaz as an autocrat, as a dictator, as someone who has, quote, made Mexicans the um, servants of foreigners and more. Nobody in Diaz's Mexico really did this. You would have a gripe with a particular judge or a particular mayor, but you did not direct your critique at uh, Porfirio Diaz. Ricardo Flores Magón did. And for doing that on the pages of Renacion, Ricardo Flores Magón had him arrested and imprisoned numerous times. And by 1903, had issued a gag order that no newspaper in all of Mexico was allowed to publish any of Ricardo Flores Magón's writings. So Ricardo really is uh, extraordinary in the sense that he is willing to, to say and do things that nobody else is under the the dictator regime, regime, and therefore he's the one that pricks open all of these questions about what's really wrong with Mexico. Is it just that locality over here, that locality over there, or is the rot really right in the president's office? And that's where the change needs to happen. I mean, he says um, one of the charges that he levels is that the Diaz administration is a den of thieves. And you write that the people that are reading this and listening to this in Mexico know what that what he means. They understand that Perforio, Perforio Diaz was a thief, a thief of land, a thief of wages, a thief of life, a thief of democracy. Are you saying that he really, Magon was raising the consciousness of the working class in Mexico that it, it did not have to be this way? That this was that this was um, a policy that was being uh, that they were being pressed down on by a dictator of Mexico who could have you know done it a different way, who could have ruled differently in a more just way. I think it's even more dramatic than that. I think what Ricardo Flores Magón is doing is he's asking Mexicans, what do we need? Do we need reform or do we need revolution? And he's the one who puts revolution on the table of options and possibilities for Mexicans in the early 20th century. 
And so that's the the danger and the threat of this young journalist in Mexico City is that he will not be happy with um, small reforms here and there. Um, he really is looking to remove Porfirio Diaz from office and radically transform Mexico's political and economic landscape. And that, that's a threat to the United States. So if you think about all of the U.S. investors who had moved down into Mexico, we're talking about the Rockefellers, the Guggenheims, the Doheny's, um, and many, many more people, small and large investors. Porfirio Diaz had welcomed them in, invited them in, offered them all kinds of rebates and giveaways um, in terms of taxes and land, and he protected their investments. When there were labor strikes against foreign-owned um, industries in Mexico, he would send in his police force, the Rurales, to shut down those labor strikes. When um, peasants or campesinos were being dispossessed for their lands and they would um, refuse to move, he would send in his police forces to remove them from the land. Porfirio Diaz protected U.S. investments. And so the notion that somebody was going after Diaz, a protector of U.S. investments, was quite a threat to the United States government. Here, this is very important, that by the early 20th century, of all U.S. foreign investments, 50% of them were in Mexico. Wow. Yeah. So U.S. industrialists were making millions in Mexico, and the United States government had an interest of protecting that. I, I, you're telling us how much American investors had to lose. And again, we have only to think about some of the other contemporary history where America is invested in countries around the world and then feels, uh, I guess, feels like it's necessary to interfere in the politics of those countries to protect that investment. That happens here, doesn't it? That's right. In many ways, it starts in Mexico. Um, so this is the first place of significant U.S. foreign investments is in Mexico. It happens under conditions that are, are very friendly to U.S. investors um, by Porfirio Diaz. And so um, this is why Teddy Roosevelt issues his Roosevelt Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, which basically says – Whenever there is any threat to U.S. interests across Latin America, um, the United States reserves the right to intervene. Well, the threat typically is to um, U.S. economic interest in those areas or nation states. Um, and so this is all a part of the story of the birth of U.S. imperialism, which is happening in Diaz's Mexico at the turn of the 20th century. And it sets the foundation um, as the United States moves not just around Latin America, but around the world as a global force. Um, it sets the stage for what's to come. We should say that, that some of the things that the Maganistas are doing is, you know, they're pulling off raids, they're gathering steam. Um, do they see themselves as, I, I think you define Magon as a, as a radical and an ar anarchist. Do his followers see themselves as anarchists? Sure. So Ricardo Flores Magon and his small group of journalist friends enter the United States in January of 1904. And their intention is to rebuild their social movement to start a revolution back in Mexico. 
And they do this by relaunching the rebel newspaper, Renacion, and they relaunch it from Texas and then from St. Louis and then Los Angeles. They also establish a political party, El Partido Liberal Mexicano, the PLM, and they establish an army. And that truly is an army of the dispossessed. It is people who have been forced into migrant labor um, across the borderlands on both sides of the border who join this army to try to incite an armed revolution in Mexico. And that army raids Mexico from Texas four times between 1906 and 1908. So I, I say all that to say that there are many different ways that people plug in to the Magonista mm-hmm. revolution. There are the journalists and the intellectuals who are doing a lot of work with the newspaper. There are the subscribers to the newspaper who are sending their pennies in to try to get access to these ideas and to share them around. There are the migrant workers who take the newspaper with them as they're moving from field to field to field to mine to dock across the borderlands. They pass it from hand to hand until it's tattered in rags to share these ideas with one another. And there are the people who join as soldiers of the PLM army. And again, those are largely um, men and boys of the dispossessed who are fighting with everything that they have. They're really, they're delivering guns to one another, delivering dynamite to one another. They're trying to pull their resources together so that they can build this army to disrupt the Diaz regime and incite an all-out revolution. So a lot of people are going for different reasons. Ricardo Flores Magón shifts from being a radical socialist to a militant anarchist over the course of this story. Other people make that shift with him, but not everybody. Some people are more focused on direct issues about land ownership, right, and getting ownership to land. Other people have a vision of a socialist state in Mexico, but they all come together because they believe that Porfirio Diaz must go to create a new field of possibilities for Mexicans. What's uh, what's surprising here is that Diaz is downplaying their, I guess, their influence and their effect, right? He's call- publicly calling them out as crooks and swindlers. He's saying that the government doesn't have to really worry about them. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, he's aware that they're a growing threat, yes? Right, here's the funny thing, right? So here you have a dictator or autocrat in Mexico who sees a revolution that's beginning to is, – is a foot from the United right. States. And mm-hmm. he and his cronies start to say that this revolution, in fact, is just false news. It's not really happening. Those are a bunch of swindlers out there that they're not revolutionary. That's, they're crooks. But behind the scenes, they are fully aware of the threat of the Magonistas' um, social movement. And they are issuing um, coded telegrams and letters to one another constantly between the United States government and themselves, trying to stitch together a cross-border counterinsurgency team to arrest, deport, extradite, imprison as many of these rebels as possible because they see the fate of Mexico and the United States in that sense – tied up with the fate of this revolution. You're listening to Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's my Friday book show. And Kelly Lytle Hernandez is with us. She's a historian in policing and immigration. She directs the Center for African-American Studies at UCLA. 
And you're hearing our conversation about her new book, Bad Mexicans, Race, Empire, and Revolution in the Borderlands, understanding some of the forces that were in effect as in the late, what would it be, 18, 19th, 20th century, <laughs> I guess. Late uh, 19th century, yes. Late 19th century. <laughs> and, um, and the economic forces. The United States has a lot of investment in Mexico. The Mexican people are living under the rule of a dictator, and there's a lot at stake. And so um, Professor Hernandez is telling us more about the things that were rumbling and building and the revolutionaries and anarchists and and a number of people who were involved in pushing Mexico uh, towards revolution. Um, I want to say one thing about Magón that that I thought was interesting before we kind of push on with the history. We've described him as a radical and an anarchist. I think if I if I recall this right, you also say he's he's a cruel man and he drives a lot of followers who might otherwise have been with him away. Do I do I remember that right? Right. So the the man who has the courage um, to be able to lash against the dictator when nobody else is is also the man who can lash against his friends and comrades when they don't follow his lead. And when Ricardo Flores Magón makes his journey from radical socialism to um, anarchism, some people choose to go with him, some choose to not, and in particular people who don't follow him or who contest his power right, as a charismatic um, leader – he does lash out against them. He outs people on the pages of Regeneración, and he does other things. So he is a very difficult personality. Um, all the brilliance that it takes to challenge the regime, he can often turn against um, some of his closest friends and comrades. Hmm. I thought one of the most intriguing parts of the book, of the history of this, is how the rise of of the revolution parallels the establishment of the FBI and how FBI agents are tasked eventually with tracking down the Maganistas. What What is the parallel of the history of the two? That's right. So there's a lot of interventions in this book um, where I'm making the argument that we really cannot understand U.S. history without Mexico and Mexicans and Mexican-Americans. They're right there at the center of um, some of the cornerstones of U.S. history. And one of those cornerstones certainly is um, policing and the FBI in particular. It's such a quintessential um, U.S. institution. And it emerges as like a counterinsurgency superforce over the course of the 20th century. Well, the FBI is first established in the summer of 1908 as the Bureau of Investigation. And Teddy Roosevelt and others had established the FBI really to enforce land law in the American West. But the thing is, is that the Magonistas launched their most most lethal set of raids on Diaz's Mexico in late June of 1908. They launched three raids. Dozens of people are killed, and the rebels are able to escape back across the border into the United States and seek sanctuary um, outside of Diaz's territory. 
So very quickly after the establishment of the Bureau of Investigations, Teddy Roosevelt um, and others assign almost a third of the original Bureau of Investigation agents to tracking down these Mexican revolutionaries. And the Bureau spends the next couple of years trying to arrest um, leaders of the Magonistas movement and fighters from those raids. So what I argue in this book is that the FBI, in fact, cut its teeth Mm -hmm. on trying to suppress the outbreak of the 1910 revolution and chase down these Mexican revolutionaries in the United States. Now, you're not told that in your history textbooks Mm, when you hear about the beginning of the FBI, nor are we often told that um, Mexican political activity is at the center of these sort of core stories in the the U.S. canon. But here they are. I I think what... What this emphasizes again is how high the stakes were, essentially economically, right, and politically for the United States, and how willing the United States was to interfere uh, with, you know, with this revolution that's building in Mexico. That's right. And this is really important because Ricardo Flores Magón and the Magonistas are very well known in Mexico, for the role that they played as so-called precursors of the Mexican Revolution. They literally are legends. And this year, the Mexican government declared uh, this to be the year of Ricardo Flores Magón. He died 100 years ago in Leavenworth Prison here in the United States, and they've dedicated this year to honoring his his history and his legacy. However, he is hardly known here in the United States and the Magonistas revolution is hardly known except among, um, I would say, radical Chicano organizing communities where they really are seen as um, key parts of of history. This is really important to understand that the Magonistas are at the center of U.S. history as much as they're at the center of Mexican history because of the ways in which their revolution, their emerging revolution, threatened U.S. investments and interests in Mexico, but also by the ways in which politically engaging and mobilizing Mexican migrants here in the United States, that also was a threat to U.S. white settler supremacy across the borderlands. That if you had that primary low-wage working force um, that we talked about earlier, all of a sudden joining unions and organizing and making demands on U.S. employers here, that too is problematic. And so the Magonistas are at the center of all of that. They're really at the the, the begin, beginning generation of Mexican and Mexican-American political and labor organizing here in the United States. And this is why the book opens the, and closes the way that it does. This story that is often seen as Mexican history actually is anchored in one of the most iconic and troubling um, incidents of U.S. governance, and that's in the story of a lynching. So this book about revolution in Mexico begins with a lynching of a Mexican in the small town of Rock Springs, Texas. That man's name was Antonio Rodriguez, and he was 20 years old and a migrant worker living and working in the Texas borderlands. And he was accused of killing a white woman. And he was also rumored to be a magonista. And he was burned at the stake in early November of 1910. That killing 
sets off a series of protests in Mexico against white supremacy across the border about U.S. investors in Mexico who had bought up all this land, dispossessed Mexicans, and when they hired them, used essentially what was called you know, Jim Crow or Juan Crow practices within Mexico. And when Mexicans tried to flee that violence and went north to the United States, all they did was run headfirst into a web of white supremacy in the United States. So if there's no escape, right, if immigration is not your so-called escape valve, what do you do? What you've got is revolution. And so that's why this book begins with this story of the lynching, is to help anchor it, um, the Magonesis Revolution, as being as much about the United States as it is about Mexico. I have a question about your work as a historian and where you found a lot of the archival information. Now, I assume that there are still that the, some of the copies of the tabloid that the that the Magon brothers published are still accessible. Is that is that true? And where else were you going to find uh, contemporary writing about how this was unfolding? Yes. Yeah, so there have been multiple generations of historians who have been following and taking care of the Magonista story. People have certainly collected and saved and even digitized and made publicly available the Renacion editions. And those can be found at archivomagon.net. It's an archive out of Mexico City. At the heart of this book, however, is a set of records that are um, really critical to the story. Now, once the Magonistas came to the United States, the Diaz regime sent spies and infiltrators to follow them everywhere and worked very closely with the United States government, especially after they started to raid Mexico, where the U.S. Department of War, U.S. Department of Justice, U.S. Department of Commerce and Labor and the Immigration Service, um, the U.S. Postal Service, police and sheriffs across the country, and more, all joined in on this international manhunt for the Magonistas. And one of the most significant um, interventions of the United States government on behalf of this cross-border counterinsurgency team is that one of the spies hired by the Mexican government worked with the United States Postal Service to make available the Magonistas mail. That once the Magonistas knew that they were being followed in the United States, many of them went underground and began to live in hiding. And the only way that um, U.S. spies and government agents could find them was by tracking their mail. It's surveillance, right? So U.S. Postal Service um, made the mail of the Magonistas available to the spies to chase the Magonistas across um, the United States, Canada, and Mexico. The Magonistas figured out that they were being followed, that their letters were showing up violada or violated. And so they began to write in secret code to use pseudonyms and to move every letter through at least five or six intermediaries before it got to its final destination. Still, the U.S. government and the Mexican agents were able to access their mail and use that to to chase them down. Those stolen letters were sent to Mexico City where the codes could be cracked Hmm. and the letters could be saved. 
And it's an archive of the Magonistas' stolen letters that are contained to this day at the Diplomatic Archive in Mexico City. They're at the heart of this book. And why that's so important is that those letters that they're writing to one another really take us to the front lines of their social movement, their plans of where to attack, how they're gathering up what they call dulces y escobas, right? Sweets and brooms, candies and brooms, but really is guns and dynamite in their language. How, what kind of debates they're having with another about politics and political philosophy. What kind of betrayals um, and disagreements they're having with one another at the very interpersonal level. What love affairs they're having with one another. All of that is in this correspondence that's being stolen and the code is being cracked by the agents of the Mexican government. And that's the archive that's at the heart of this book. So I was looking for some music to close with from the from the revolution. And you can bet uh, probably that I came across Pancho Villa and his horse <laughs> and that there are odes to uh, to them. I wondered if you wanted to say anything, Kelly, about Pancho Villa, because probably one of the few names that Americans recognize before we hear the music. Sure. Uh, Well, Pancho Villa, Emiliano Zapata, Francisco Madero are certainly the people who led the fighting phase of the Mexican Revolution once it began in 1910 and certainly earned their place in the history books. But before Pancho Villa, before Emiliano Zapata, before Francisco Madero and the others are the Magonistas who really inserted the idea of revolution and forwarded a set of proposals to improve the conditions of Mexican life, um, including um, ending debt servitude, ending child labor, returning land to peasants, and whatnot. So um, we have Francisco uh, Pancho Villa and others to thank for you know pushing that revolution forward in, in certain ways. <laughs> in other ways, we have much to not thank him for. Um, but that is Francisco or Pancho Villa, and his contribution is that he took the revolution and those ideas into their fighting phase. Siete leguas, el caballo que Villa más estimaba. Cuando ya silver los trenes, se paraba y relinchaba. That's an ode to Pancho Villa and his horse, Heroes of the Revolution. Kelly Lytle Hernandez's book is titled Bad Mexicans, Race, Empire, and Revolution in the Borderlands. Kelly, thank you. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm.